0: All right, before we get to the show here at NPR, we want to better understand who is listening to these podcasts and what role podcasts like this one play in your life. So help us out and take a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. All one word. This takes less than 10 minutes. It really helps support this show. npr.org slash podcast survey. All one word. Thank you so much. Okay, here's the show. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Today I am bringing you one of the most uplifting conversations we have had on this show in a while. And it's a conversation with a guy you may know whose actual job is to help people live their best lives. His name is Karamo Brown, one of the Fab Five on the hit show Queer Eye. That is the Netflix reboot of the hit Bravo makeover show. Netflix's Queer Eye just launched its third season, but also Karamo's out with a new memoir. That book is about his path to queer eye after doing social work and psychotherapy and struggling with addiction and drug abuse. Heads up, listeners, we cover all those heavy themes in this chat, so some parts may not be the best for kids. Anywho, the Karamo Brown and I spoke in front of a live audience at Sixth and I. That's a historic synagogue and event space in Washington, D.C. I give him a proper intro on stage. This is so cool. I love going to church. So, they go, hey, y'all, to all of you guys. Thanks for being here. I am Sam Sanders, and I should be clear right away. I'm not Carmel Brown. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. He's black. He's bald. He's wearing a bomber jacket. But no, friends, I'm not Carmel Brown. I actually brought this bomber jacket today. I bought it today at Zara down the street. Um, in Caramel's honor and also in hopes for just one selfie with Mr. Brown that I could caption, twins. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanna talk more about the man of the hour, Cromwell Brown, uh, where to start? We all know him as one of the Fab Five on the Netflix show Queer Eye. Uh, yes, again, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So, In a show that makes me ugly cry but happy cry every time, Um, Karamo is the mental health expert and psychotherapist on Queer Eye. So while there are others on the show who I also love, teaching people how to cook better or take care of their hair and skin or dress well and organize their closet, Karamo is out here trying to help folks live better lives, Uh, trying to unpack some trauma in the process and give them a big boost of self-help. I would argue it is the hardest job on the show. Uh, so, before this, years before, I first saw Karamo uh, actually as the first openly gay black man on reality TV. Yes. When he, starred, when he starred in season 15 of The Real World. Where was it? Philly. Philly, yes, yes, yes. Uh, He was not the Karamo that we see now, and over the course of of his life, we have seen him come to embody many of the principles of uplift, self-love, and optimism that he now preaches on Queer Eye. It has been beautiful to watch. Karamo's new book is called Karamo, my story of embracing purpose, healing, and hope. We'll talk about the book. We'll talk about the show. We'll talk about bomber jackets. I am so excited. Karamo, come on up.
1: Oh, I'm about to get emotional. Oh, thank you all for showing up for this conversation. It means the world to me, you have no idea. I don't take any of these moments lightly because there was a time where I didn't feel seen, where I didn't feel like I was good enough, and so to have you all be here, be part of my dream and make me feel seen, I just want to say thank you, friends. I appreciate you so much.
0: I love it, We can sit, that's you. Okay, how are you? I'm really good, are you kidding me? I almost started crying already. So I feel <laughs> good. This is how many days after book launch? Um, the book launch yesterday. Oh my god. Oh yeah. I know. Just yesterday. I'm I, super excited. I talked to a lot of authors and like the thing that I always realize talking with them it's like the writing of the book is probably half of the work. Like once it's done Getting out there to market it and push it, and, be, and I've seen and heard you everywhere these last few days. I heard you on Marketplace yesterday or the day before. You were just everywhere. Yes. What, is the, what is the craziness of your life right now?
1: Um, it's just one blessing after another. I mean, what I said at the beginning of this is my truth of like, I'm telling you, this is such a blessing to be in a space with people who I want to send love to, and I feel your love. And so touring and the whole experience of writing the book has been exceptional because it took it didn't take me that long. They How long were like take you? um uh, 2 months. Wow. Yeah. I okay. shot I know, right? See the, the reason Teach it, everyone your ways. Well, to be honest with you, it's because I was honest and transparent. So they were like, "Well, it's going to take you longer because you're going to want to figure out what to censor and what not to say." And I was like, "Nope, not a problem." So, I'm like, no, I'm just going to tell the truth. Yeah. And once you do that and you just open yourself up, it just makes it so much easier. So really the hardest part was like me sitting at my kitchen one day with a Coca-Cola, some gummy bears, and Bobby was on my couch. And I was like, well, what's the format going to be? And then once I figured out the format, I was like, well, and it just came out. You know, yeah. it was just done.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's like, this is the thing about being confessional and being truthful and being honest. As soon as you say the thing that you were afraid to say, you realize everyone else, or most of everyone else, is dealing with the same stuff. Oh my gosh. So I'm it's, sitting here reading your book like, me too. Me too. Right, okay. Me too. Yeah.
1: It's the truth. All of us experience these same universal truths that make us feel as if we're separate from the world, yet every single one of us in here are going through it. Let's try right now. How uh-huh. many people in here have ever had a sad day? Okay, there we go. How many people have ever had a dream but have been scared to go after that dream? Okay. Um, how many people have had a family member, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, say something to you that affected you deep, like told you you didn't look good enough? People, I didn't finish it and people were raising their hands. Y'all already know what I'm about to say. Y'all already know what I'm about to say. <laughs> it's all of us. And the thing is, is that when we talk about these issues, we don't feel so alone. One of the things that I learned early on, which helped me with writing this book, was um, when I was young, I used to lie a lot. I loved it, you know, because <laughs> it was easy. But then I realized it's not easy, because the thing about lying is remembering it.
0: And you got to keep lying.
1: You got to keep on lying. But that memory part really yeah. got me. Yeah. I was like, my memory's not good enough to lie, because, you know, yeah. I'm like, I tell somebody on Tuesday, well, listen, you know, I, I, whatever the lie is, and then on Wednesday, they come back and I'm like, what was the lie again? <laughs> oh, you yes. know, That's just too much energy. When you know the truth, you just say the truth, and then two days later, they, it, it's still the truth. And so that allowed me just to be free in writing this yeah. book.
0: Yeah. You open with the story of your name. Yes. Uh, You did not like your name growing up. And it was a process to get through that and learn to love it.
1: Yes. Why didn't you like that name? Well, um, you know, my parents are from Jamaica. My sister's here. Hi, sis. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's my baby sister right there. Um... So our father is a very unique man. You write about him in the book a lot. I do write about that man in the book. Uh, But he literally decided, you know, he came to a space where he decided that he was going to start following the Rastafarian faith. And a lot of people, when they think of Rastas, they think of Bob Marley smoking weed on the beach, like life is good. Um, Y'all going to lie. You know, that's what you think. (laughs) You know, that's what you think. But that, there's a lot more to Rastafarian faith. And one of the things that he really came up with is that he wanted his son to have a name that had meaning and it was yeah. part of like the African culture and that could sort of shape the way I went. And in the bubble of our home, it was great. It yeah, was Yeah, well, because uh,
0: the translation, so it's the full, it was. So my Karamo name Kariga. is Karamo
1: Yeah, my name is Karamo Kariga, which means educated rebel in Swahili. Beautiful. And, Thanks. I mean, it's cute now. (laughs) (laughs) Try saying that five times when you're five years old in Houston, Texas. And no, yeah, okay. Shout out to Houston. But nobody has ever seen someone who looks like you or has ever heard a name like that.
0: Because you were going to schools where there were a lot of white students there that... Yeah, yeah, I went to predominantly white high
1: schools. One of the things that my father wanted to do for his children was put us in schools that he thought were better. I'm doing air quotations for people who can't see me. And the unfortunate part is that schools that were better um are the schools that were more funded, had a better student to teacher ratio. Yeah. And those are predominantly in white neighborhoods yeah. because of the systemic issues we have in this country. And so me, I'm now young and I'm going into these schools where I'm the only African American kid and I walk in the classroom and I'm like, Hi, I'm Karamo, and they're like, Kaohoo <laughs> Ka what? Yeah. You know in the book I describe this sort of this scene that's very vivid of Before I was in school, my father would protect me with my name. So if someone said something, whether they were in our race or out, he would say, you got to love this name. This name is prideful. And it made me feel prideful. And I would stand there like, yeah, yeah, you better better learn my name. And then the first day of school, he wasn't there with me to Mm -hmm. protect me. And what I realized is that when he was protecting me, he never gave me the language to protect myself. And I think a lot of times... Just as human beings, we want to support and protect other people, but really to support and help them is to give them the language so they can support themselves. Yeah. And so when I walked in there that first day, the teacher who innocently, you know, I don't think, and I write, she's in this, trying. Yeah, I don't you think know. she was being malicious. You know, yeah. it was like Sarah here, John here, cuckoo. <laughs> And I was like, uh, Karamo. And the class, she, there was a question that I still get to this name. I don't, it doesn't have the trauma it had then, but was, what kind of name is that? Mm. And that stuck like a dagger to me. And I remember just shrinking in my seat and feeling like, I don't wanna be different. I don't want, there's nothing special about my name anymore. But when I got to Florida AM University, it was the first time I remember walking into freshman orientation and there was a girl by the name of Karima. And I was like, oh my gosh, your name is like mine. And she was like, oh, your name's Karamo? She was like, cool, what is your meaning? And it was, it was the opposite of what I experienced. And then I walked in and it was just like everyone, you know, was like embracing of the yeah. name. There was no yeah. issue. And so I immediately just was like, I'm falling in love with my name and my identity again. Yeah. And it was beautiful. That's what started that whole transition of me saying, I can be honest about who I am and love all parts of my identity.
0: Support HBCUs. Yes, support (laughs) HBCUs. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders talking with Karamo Brown, star of the hit TV show, Queer Eye. We'll be right back.
1: Support for NPR and the following message come from Scribner, publisher of Heavy, Kiese Lehman's award winning memoir about growing up black in Mississippi, confronting the weight of secrets he spent a lifetime avoiding, and the complicated depths of love between mother and son. Heavy is a powerful, provocative, raw memoir, Heavy by Kiese Lehman, available in hardcover, paperback, ebook, and audiobook.
0: Hey, it's Ophira Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another. For the entire month of April, we're celebrating women in comedy. And we're kicking things off with Russian doll actor Greta Lee and co-creator Leslie Headland. And later in the month, we'll be joined by Retta from NBC's Parks and Recreation and Good Girls. And many more. Start listening this Friday. So... You mentioned your father in that story, and he is a constant theme throughout the book. Yes. And you are extremely candid about your relationship with your father. Mm-hmm. And there are so many positive values that he instilled in you, mm-hmm. education, hard work, etc. the name that he chose for you. Um, but you talk about him being abusive, not accepting of every part of who you are. Mm-hmm. All relationships with parents are complicated. But you put all of the complications out there. Was there any pause? There was not one piece of a pause for me.
1: Again, I wanted to make sure that I laid it all out so that I can say, yes, this relationship was challenging in many ways. And I I, I want to do a fair picture of painting my father in a way to say, he's not a, just a bad guy.
0: No, I liked him. You know, <laughs> I'm reading the book, and I'm like, I like this guy. But there's obviously stuff. Yeah, because we all have stuff. We are all likable.
1: We are all lovable. But there are days when we are challenged by the narratives that have been fed to us. You know, if you have a mother or a father or a cousin or a sister or a brother or a friend telling you that certain people who look a certain way or do something is wrong, after a while you believe that and that becomes part of your subconscious, the way you approach the world. And so it doesn't take away the good parts of you. It just means that you have an ability to grow through those negative parts and those negative messages that you've learned, but how do you do that? And that's why I shared these stories with my father and didn't have any issue with it. I wanted to show that he is a good guy. He tried to put us in the best schools. He tried what he could do, but he also was conflicted in a lot of ways. And what happens is that when we get hysterical about something, y'all going to be with me real quick, okay? (laughs) When you get hysterical about something, it's usually historical. Say that with me. When you get hysterical, it's usually historical. Say it with me because I'm dropping this, uh, some knowledge. Listen, I grew up, we're going to do this a couple of times. I grew up in the black church. And so, in the black church, you turn spots. to your neighbor and you repeat what the pastor has said. I'm not calling myself a pastor, but in this context.
0: You're in a place of worship. Oh, right. yeah.
1: so Pastor Brown today, God forgive me. Um, so, you're going to turn to your neighbor and say, Neighbor, Here. if it's hysterical, Here. it's historical. Here. So, think about that. Anytime you get to a place where you start feeling yourself being full of angst or reacting in a way that you normally don't react, there's probably some root trauma that you had. And what I realized with my father is that he had a lot of that root trauma from his parents, from his childhood that he never dealt with. So, though he was a good guy in many areas, when he would hit my mother, yeah. and abuse her, yeah. that was part of the trauma he experienced when he saw his father hitting his mother. Mm-hmm. And when he would drink into a stupor or um, you know, use drugs, it was because he couldn't deal with that trauma and so now he was trying to medicate himself mm-hmm. into a space. And so I, when I was younger, I didn't have that knowledge. Yeah. But as an older man, I can look at that and say, oh, Something is wrong. You're hurting and that's how I approach a lot of people and I encourage most of you to do that When someone is doing something that you don't agree with it's not just because they want to be a quote-unquote bad person It's Mm -hmm. because a lot of times they're hurting and they don't know how to express it that's how I healed from that trauma with him. What is the status of your
0: relationship with him right now?
1: Um, It's still conflicted because um, He says things like he loves me Mm -hmm. but that love is really conditional, mm-hmm. really conditional. So he will talk to me when he more so needs something. Mm-hmm. He says that's not the only time he calls me, mm-hmm. but my phone record says different. Um, and so does my bank account. Yeah. Um, is he comfortable with who you are? Not at all. So that's the second part. Um, He will... Because i healing the trauma. My children have a great relationship with him. They can call him. Yeah, my two sons. And I set a clear boundary with him of, you can speak to my family, but you cannot influence them with your trauma. So none of the negative things that you grew up with can you now try to put on them. Because I do am equipped to help them heal, but you're not allowed to do that. Um, So when he speaks to them... He will never ask about me or my partner, my fiance. Yeah. We were at a funeral recently, and my fiance was there because we went to the funeral as a family. Right. And he literally stayed on the opposite side of the room. Yet, a week prior, he told through a sibling, because he likes to do that whole telephone chain oh, yeah. where he don't call too much. Um, am I right, little sister? She's a chain <laughs> she, a- she ain't gonna tell me anyway. Um, she he he um, he didn't speak to me the entire time. And so actually when we were shooting season three, Mm -hmm. I wrote a three page letter to him. Mm -hmm. Um, now that I just said that out loud, I should have did it like a um, a four page letter, like Aaliyah. (laughs) Made it cute. Y'all know that song from Aaliyah? Yeah. I'm sending him a four
0: page. But that was like a that was a different Uh, kind of letter. That was a different kind of letter. So good
1: it's it's probably better (laughs) that I did a three page letter. But I wrote him a three-page letter. It just was on my heart. I just said, listen, I know we're healing through this. I know that you're going to have to come to a space and find the language to accept who I am unconditionally. But as you're going through it, I want you to know that I forgive you. I forgive every action you've ever done. Mm -hmm. Um, I love myself enough to love you as you're growing. And I hope one day we can get to a space. And I am not expecting a reply but I would love one. Um, he told my sisters he was going to write me, and I've never gotten a letter.
0: Well, that's maybe the first step. Maybe, maybe a little bit. again. But whatever it is, healed, it's fine. Whatever it is, it's because I've, yeah.
1: I'm, I'm loving him through his healing yeah. process, yeah. and that's all that matters.
0: Yeah. You are also very open and honest in this book about the good and bad in your past. Yes. You talk about being involved in relationships in which you were abusive. You talk about your struggles with addiction. You talk about struggles with suicide. i um, like, attempt. Uh, what of the stuff of your life that you shared in this book are you still having to work on the most? Um, none of it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> okay.
1: I mean, I'm not going to be arrogant enough to believe that I don't have to constantly do work on myself every single day. But those major issues of um, domestic violence, um, drug abuse, those things I don't have issues with anymore. Um, Depression, suicidal ideations. I've gotten to a place now where I'm able to understand what I'm feeling in the moment. You know, in the book, I talk about. Um, how before addiction started for me from food and porn, because a lot of times people hear addiction, they just think drugs and alcohol, but addiction comes in many forms. There was even a period in my life where I was addicted to exercising. You know, not anymore. Whew, thank God.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I did not like the gym. Were you a CrossFitter? Um, the say it again? Were you a CrossFitter? Yes, it was like four times a no, day. No, it was
1: no, like, no, I'm going to no, go. No. And I realized anytime you're doing something in ec- excess, it's unhealthy. And I realized that the reason my addictive personality went from these things to then even drugs and drinking was because, first of all, I wasn't dealing with the issues and emotional turmoil I had. But secondly, it was because there was a trigger in me. Mm. And I think when we can realize those triggers, we'll start to realize why we have the same behavior pattern in different parts of our life. So for me, I realized that addiction comes up anytime I feel pressured. And so once I understood pressure will cause me to feel as if I need to eg- do and engage in behavior that becomes addictive, I can check myself. So, prime example, I used to use a lot of cocaine after the real world, a lot, a lot. And I was, it was so careless with my life and was so embarrassed. Mm -hmm. I detail a story in the book where um, we were going to a New Year's Eve party, it was me, my best friend Trey, one of my girlfriends, we were in the back of a cab and my mother had flown in and she was in the front seat. Now me being a little bit arrogant, always being truthful, my mother and family members knew that I was using. But because they didn't have the language to support my father, of course they didn't have the language to support me. So I sort of got away quote unquote, with the bad behavior. But we were in the back of the car, and I took out a bag of cocaine, and my mother's in the front seat, and my friends are gasping. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, she knows. And I'm like, doing bumps of cocaine as my mother's in the front seat. And she turned around, and I just saw the pain, and hurt, and sadness in her eyes, of like, not again, really? I'm dealing with this. I'm looking at this. I cannot believe it. And that was one of those like rock bottoms moments for me as I reflect. And the moment at that time, I was like, oh, look at me. I'm being honest. I'm living my life. I'm living my best life. But I wasn't. It was not my best life at all. Yeah. And so when you talk about, like, what are the issues I'm still dealing with, I don't deal with that anymore because I realized in that moment I was feeling pressured about what is going to be my next step in my career. Yeah. Um, I was feeling pressured about from everyone else in my family were buying homes and doing things. I was feeling that pressure of, like, I'm not living up. So since I'm not living up, I'm going to escape. Mm -hmm. And I finally did get clean. But at the Emmys, because the guys and I, we won three Emmys. Thank you, everybody, for supporting. That was a little humble brag. I ain't going to lie. But we're happy about it. Um, You should be happy about it. Thank you. Congratulations. But at the Emmys, we were getting dressed in separate hotels. Well, me and Jonathan got dressed in the same hotel room. And one of my friends came. And he was like, oh, do you want a bump? And for half a second, Mm. I was like, ooh. Mm. Because we were on a whirlwind. And I was like, no. I'm feeling pressured by getting on that stage and performing. Will we win? Will we do well? And I was like, the pressure is triggering me to believe that I might want to engage in this behavior. Mm. And so I was able to say it out loud and say, pressure, not today, Satan. And <laughs> like I, I do that all the time. I say the emotion I'm feeling and then I say, not today, Satan. Um, And so I was like, pressure, not today, Satan. And I asked that friend kindly to leave. I said, a boundary for me and you is that right now, if you're going to still be engaging in that, Mm. we can't really hang out. And so I do work on it in that sense of acknowledging and making sure I don't fall back, but there's no real like me
0: dealing with those issues. Well, and what I really appreciate in the book and what I think is so healthy about the way you present your life in this book is that when people reach a place where they think they are healthy, clean, responsible, feeling good, there's, there's sometimes, and I'll see in people that I'm even close with, they want to ignore the versions of their selves that weren't where they wanted them to be. Mm-hmm. They want to ignore the hot mess of 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. They want to mm-hmm. ignore the person who was just not all the way there. And what I like about your book and your journey and your story is that you are taking every version of yourself to the party. Yes. And I think, you know, there is... Can I tell you why,
1: though? Yes. Part of that is because I realized Mm -hmm. very early on that failure is not the opposite of success. It's part of it. And so the reason that I bring all pieces of myself, the hot mess part, the good guy here, is because I needed those moments so that I could be here today. If I wouldn't have went through those moments, then...
0: I wouldn't be here, so I'm proud of it. And also, when you think of the moments in your life where you can most celebrate your growth, the version of you that would most enjoy the party is a hot mess version of you. Uh, Exactly. Let them come. Like, let them be part of your success. But let me tell you, it's not our fault that we all like to leave the hot
1: mess in behind. It's Instagram's (laughs) fault.
0: Let (laughs) me tell y'all right
1: now. Instagram got us all fooled to post only the best moments of our lives. And and so we're like, oh, of course I'm not going to show you that I had an argument with my husband and my wife before. Of course I'm not going to show you that I was crying in my pillow yesterday, I'm going to show you the car that I just got. It's like, look at what you can get if you just like my post. And we're all guilty of it. Every single one of us. We put only the best moments. So that's sometimes when um, I see myself or other people post like four years ago and they throw, you know, the throwback. I'm like... Girl, I know four years ago that might have happened, but four years ago in two days you was not in that space. (laughs) And it's okay for us to admit that. It's okay because being in that other space allowed you to get to that space where you did have a good day. Exactly.
0: Exactly. I want to talk about one of the reviews of your book. I have been reading because,
1: reviews, but, so this could be bad. <laughs> it's not bad, it's okay, not bad, okay. but I found it
0: quite interesting, so okay. I wanted to bring it up. Okay. A friend of mine who works for Out Magazine, his name is Travel Anderson, he wrote of your book the following, quote, there's a countless explanatory commas on aspects of blackness and black queerness strewn throughout the book, like noting how black people call light-skinned folk high-yella, or how clocked means, I see that you're gay or part of the community, even if you haven't expressed it. And though no one necessarily writes a book to only be consumed by a particular group of people, such inclusions, perhaps at the insistence of an editor, signal a capitulation to a general read white audience. Mm. I did not think that reading your book, but when I read that, I said, oh, we gotta ask about that. Yeah. As someone who is of color, as someone who is gay in a world that's still mostly straight, what are the pressures you feel to explain who you are and the community you come from to people that don't know that in your book and also on your show like i know for my show for instance like the majority of our audience is white and so there's things that i have to think about differently in explaining for that reason, and I don't know if it's good or bad, but I know it is a thing that I think about, and so I wonder how you work with that.
1: Well, I first of all think that education is important and in any way it's coming. So we did an episode with our first trans hero, mm-hmm. Skylar, who we love, yeah. and you know, Jonathan and I have many trans friends. We understand the trans experience, we've never lived it, but we have we get it. Yeah. Where Anthony and Tan hmm. boldly said, I've never met a trans person, and so, with me in this book, you know, sharing, you know, what the language means, it wasn't just to say, "Oh, if you're outside of being black or gay, let me explain to you." I also was understanding that there is people who could be black or
0: gay and still not know who the language. also
1: might not know it. Yeah, and I think that we get sometimes caught up in this this place of thinking, like, "Oh, um, for the shady reviewer." I really brought it to uh, like yeah. We sorry. get we get to I'm okay with it, you know what I mean? Um, there we get to this place where I think we get to we start saying like Oh, don't pander to someone else. Don't, like, have to explain yourself. But why is it bad to educate someone who doesn't know? I mean, I think that's part of the divide in our country right now is that people are afraid to ask the questions because they don't want to seem like they are fill in the blank. Racist, Mm -hmm. homophobic, Mm -hmm. sexist. So we're all walking around with questions in our head and we're scared to ask someone else. And I'm like... Go ahead and ask me, because I can see the difference between intention, and mm. I think intention is really important. Mm. And so when someone is saying something to me, I understand if their intention is to be malicious, or if it's just to grow and learn. And if their intention is to grow and learn, I'm going to explain it. And if their intention is to be malicious, I'm going to ask them why they feel the need to be malicious, and then I'm going to still teach them, yeah. because education is paramount. Yeah.
0: Well, and it's also this time... Yeah, that was a good See? That negative graph brought some really reflective, constructive comments. Yeah, (laughs) it did. I do think it is a particularly important time, perhaps, for over-explanation of where people are coming from in this moment for the LGBTQ community, because things are changing so fast. Yes. The language that I was thinking about using when I was experiencing whatever 10, 20 years ago... Some of it is, irre- is irrelevant now, yeah. And the language that young people are using today is going to be different a year or two from now, yeah. And so to that, I say, it doesn't hurt to over-explain or make sure and, you can bring folks along and with that's, you.
1: And that's really what I try to accomplish. So, like some of those examples he says in the book, of like in the chapter I talk about, there's a chapter in my book where I talk about colorism. Um, you know, I come from a Caribbean background, and my granny used to say to me all the time when I was younger, "Don't darken up my family anymore." And it caused me many times as a child to not go outside and not play outside because I didn't want to embarrass my family by darkening up the family. And as I got older, I started to realize that colorism played into so many things, you know, e- even today, like the jokes about light skin versus dark skin in the African-American community, you know, they'll, they'll ha- there'd be memes about Drake, you know, versus who's a rapper, if y'all know, uh, <laughs> see? I'm explaining, see, because somebody in here might not know who Drake is, and I don't want you to walk out and not get this context. Because to be like,
0: who's Drake? You know what I mean? He's a fair-skinned black rapper. Yes, he is.
1: Who I used to have a crush on until why? I saw his knees. I know. He was on Saturday Night like, Y'all look up Drake Lee's later. Y'all gonna see his knees. What's I don't wrong know with why. his knees? I don't listen. I love everybody who loves themselves, but for some reason I was like. Drake, I can't do you with Oh, you I'm have been rubbing my knees now. I know, exactly. Oh, okay? I mean, my knees might not be cute, but Drake's knees in that one day was like,
0: mm
1: mm. So, the knees. The knees. It was just his knees. <laughs> knees. Um, so, you know, even like with Drake, people talk about him being light skinned and being more sensitive. And then, you know, we see sort of like darker men, and they say they're rougher and they're like stronger, you know what I mean? And then I also look at the media and I looked at the, the media that I was consuming that I loved. Mm. You know, when it came to like the Jeffersons that played in my house. For there to be a powerful African American couple, there had to be a light skinned person who was married to a darker skinned mm. person to balance them out. Um, then the Huxtables came along and there was a light skinned dark skin. Yeah. Today, blackish is around. There was a light skinned dark skin. There was Martin. There was light skinned dark skin. And you see these repetitive behaviors and mm. how colorism is still playing a part. and I Subscribe to those, that for many years I thought the men that I need to date to be an ideal couple needed to be lighter than me. Oh. And the reason in the book I explain those nuances is because if you are white, you might not yeah. understand what it is to have experienced colorism or have had your grandmother tell you don't darken up my family and the trauma and that pain that causes you. And I wanted them to understand, like, that's what I experienced. Mm -hmm. And if you have a friend who's going through that, now you won't be like, oh, I don't get it. You'll get it. You know what I mean? And I'd talk about that again with... Like, even some of the gay terms, you know, like, I say things because there could be my straight girlfriend who doesn't understand what that term means. Doesn't mean she's homophobic, but I want, I think we just got to get to a place
0: where we're not feeling as if everyone's out to attack us. Yeah. It's
1: and okay yeah. to
0: talk and to talk. share. And I think a lot of people who come from a place where they've been marginalized, you're hurt. And, you, and sometimes there is this thought that if someone doesn't get you, it's because they hate you. And sometimes yes. they don't get you just because they don't know.
1: They don't know. They don't know. So
0: I mean with
1: all with old Google out there, we still don't know. Still and it's know. okay. It's okay. And Google be lying. Google <laughs> Let me tell y'all. I don't something. trust it. I call my fiance Dr. Google because every time <laughs> something happens to me or my sons, he's like, so listen, I know what you have. You have some, you know, disease that originated in Korea in 1912. And I'm like, who told you that? He's like, Google. Google. And I'm like, well, yeah. I do.
0: I have it then, yeah, of course. Done. You know? It's done. It's um, done. Yeah. You know. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders talking with Karamo Brown, star of the hit TV show Queer Eye.
1: We'll be right back. Yeah. Support for this podcast comes from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age.
0: Welcome to the 21st century.
1: Do you see Jesus in the burnt toast?
0: Do you realize that literally there's a bucket of condoms by the exit? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to <laughs> me? We cannot just uh,
1: say, stop, I want to get off. Invisibilia, season five. No easy answers, just the right questions.
0: Can we talk about Queer Eye? Yes, we can All talk good. about Queer Eye. Okay. All right. All right. okay, good, good, good. Um, I guess, like, the first big question that probably all of us have is, what season three spoilers can you give us? Not spoilers. Tips. Tidbits. Peaks. Um, uh,
1: No, no spoilers.
0: (laughs) Information. I will say that when
1: we met a year ago, can y'all believe it's only been a year? Wow. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Um, Yeah. A year ago, the five of us were strangers and did not know each other, and you know, um, so when we were recording, we were still learning each other. We were still learning um, Jonathan's jokes. You know, um, (laughs) we were still still learning Anthony Smolder, you know what I mean? (laughs) We were still learning, you know, Tan France's way of telling you to piss off, but in the kindest way
0: possible, (laughs) you know?
1: We, 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 the four of us would be out partying and Bobby would not be there because he was at work. And we were still learning, like, oh, we got to kind of bring the party to Bobby because he's building a house right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's um, the truth. And so, you know, for that reason, like now in season three we know each other so well so like a a prime example is like the guy you'll see this because i saw the cuts they know when i'm about to go in for the like let's get deep and cry um bobby and i say this in the book he calls me coropra um (laughs) and so they'll all make reference they're like coropers coming let's leave and because i'll do the lean i'll be like so tell me what really happened (laughs) And then they're like, oh, tears are coming. We're going. We're going. <laughs> and so um, I think that's probably one of the most exceptional pieces of it because mm-hmm. we know each other. We're a family now. we have fully gelled. We feel confident in who we are. We're not allowing anybody to dictate how we help the heroes. Like at first there used to be some like, oh, you should kind of do this. You know, there was a lot. Oh, my gosh. I can't tell you many times Jonathan would. Come to us, and we'd all be consoling him because he'd be so pissed that he had to shave off a beard that he didn't want to shave off. You're really? Like Sarah, oh, listen. Wait. Yes. That
0: kind of hurts my heart.
1: It hurts. My, it really? Hurt, it hurt our heart too, and it really hurt our baby JVN's heart because <laughs> he was mad so, about it.
0: Beards are glory.
1: Exactly. I agree. And so he, and so he was like, but there was this. In the first seasons, you know, and I talk about this a bit in the book, it was sort of like they were still figuring out how to transition from the original Queer Eye, which was groundbreaking and amazing. But physical transformations were paramount. Mm. So if you see a guy and he has a beard, the way to show the audience that he looks different is so there's no the beard. beard. But it's 2019. And the beard might be cute if it's styled right. And so, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so, like... He had yeah. Those, yeah. those things. Um, yeah. It was the same thing with me. I talk about in the book about, you know, like, the sort of pushback I got of, like, I went in there, and I'm like, I am trained as a mental health professional. I am fixing their insides. There's, yeah. there's nothing. And they'd be like, well, as you're fixing their insides, can you also put together a photo album? And I was like, no. <laughs> um, and I'm like, I'm over here like this. I'm like, um, okay. Um... <laughs> I really want this job, so here's an album of you and your dad.
0: Um, so you guys have become more of the executive producers now, it sounds like.
1: No, we have two amazing
0: executive producers. But you and are... No, yeah, yeah. I don't really about to say involved. this is because
1: yeah. we have our show, and a lot of people don't know this, um, the network executive at Netflix who runs the show is a, a woman. Our executive producers, both of them are women. Um, two of them are lesbians. And I think that's important yeah. because... I don't think the show would have had the growth it would have had if there, would have just, if there wouldn't have been diverse voices mm-hmm. in the room. Mm-hmm. And so it was so important for us to see these women leading it because it allowed us to be more careful with what we said and how we interacted. You know, now it's like they realize from the response of you all, which I'm like so thankful for you all, um, because of what you were putting out on social media, they were like, Karamo, your piece is important. People are craving how to fix Their mental health, how to fix their emotional parts. And we're not going to stifle it. We want you to go forward and we want you to really show people the tips and tools of Mm -hmm. how to have really cathartic moments and grow and heal. And I was like, I'm here. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, We're gonna to get to audience questions that I have on these note cards, but I have two quick more questions for you yes. from me. Okay. First is, um, what one piece of advice should people all over the place stop giving to folks that we love and care about?
1: Ooh. Thanks.
0: <laughs>
1: Not give to folks. I mean, I wish you would give me this can't be multiple choice, but like there is so like, like, there's, I mean, yeah, yeah. there's well, so us, much. There's so much bad us some advice hit. out there. Give us okay. Some, like, what are the heavy hits? Um, uh, I mean, this is not really advice, but something that people say a lot is like, get over it. Mm. I hate when people tell people to get over it. Yeah. Like, if I, I, I was telling someone earlier tonight, you know, they were, they were in a relationship, they broke up, and they were like mad because friends were like, oh, you've been talking about it for like two years, you know, a year, get over it. And it's like, Girl, Excellent. if I was in relation for five years, you're not gonna tell me to get over it in a year. It took me five years to get to this place. Give me another five to get over it, please. Like, you know, it's very important that we allow people to heal at their own pace um, and not rush their journey. Okay, y'all like that one? All right. I lo- you can always see where people get it, so we're gonna do that one. Neighbor? Neighbor. <laughs> allow people? Allow people. To heal? To heal. At their own pace yeah so i think that's part of y'all all of y'all are gonna be in the black church by next sunday
0: <laughs> <laughs> my grandmother would be so proud right now if she saw this well see but the thing oh, is this is going to be an hour they don't know how long those black church are. okay go. yeah oh yeah i don't know if they're ready for that do not go unless
1: you've already eaten a big breakfast and have a snack in your purse
0: <laughs> yes
1: yes because you will be there for four and a half hours and between the dancing.
0: Three collection plates. Yeah. And on the fifth Sunday, they'll have two church services just because. Let me tell y'all something. That's, that's a real thing. I'm sorry. We digress.
1: Let me tell you something. When I was my mother, she wouldn't allow this. But as I got older, I was good for sneaking and sneak out. Uh, like, if it starts at 7, I get there right at 830 to catch the word. Oh, and yeah. then, like, as he's about to go into collection, I just leave my money in and then leave.
0: No. Because I'm like, I don't, I don't I, need all the accoutrements that come with this. Can I tell you how bad it was oh, girl, for me? So, my mother was the church organist. Really? So, whenever the doors of the church were open, we were there. What? And there was a certain time in my life during the summers where we would go to six church services a week. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Anyway, we're going to get to these questions from the audience. We had folks send them on note cards to us, and we picked some that we liked. Uh, But in the spirit of the black church, we're running over on time, so it's going to be a speed round. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No name on this one, but the question is, what is your skincare routine that people need to know?
1: Ooh. Y'all saying I'm glowing? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um,
1: Well, right now, it's Cover FX, a nice little beat. Um, <laughs> cover FX is a makeup. If you didn't know, um, and, but what I usually do on my skin to take take down inflammation and to keep pimples down is ice. If you rub a piece of ice on your face, Google <laughs> it later. Oh, don't Google it. No, we no, just talked about it, Google it, being a right, liar. You know, go to a skin perf- care professional. They'll tell you. But um, I use ice on my face, huh. and so I just rub a piece of ice. It's free. It takes down inflammation. <laughs> free is cute. I don't know about y'all. I like, I don't care how much money I got in my bank account If someone says it's free, I'm like, sign me up um, So I just put a piece of ice I you know, go under it gently If it starts hurting, I stop You know what I mean? And that's, <laughs> it's, it's not hurting because it's hurting It's like, stop doing something to you It's just like your skin gets numb And so it feels like it's hurting um, um, Also, I use guts, um, sunscreen Which is something Yes, right? Um, there's a myth in communities of yeah, color do people don't have to use skin. it too and let me tell y'all, people of color, you need sunscreen. Okay, skin cancer does not care if you're black, Asian, Latino, it's gonna come for you. So please use sunscreen, yeah. okay? Yeah. Please. Yes, please. yes.
0: Next question What advice would you give to a budding social worker? Ooh, self care. Take care of yourself.
1: And it goes back to what we said earlier about setting boundaries. When I worked in social services, I was very much the person who was in my boss's office constantly and was like, listen, so um, my kids is a little heavy, and I'm going to be needing a two and a half hour lunch, um, just to let you know. And this is a boundary for me to find time for myself, and for um, me to be in a space where I can come back and give myself fully to the children we're working with. And if I ever got any feedback, let me tell you what I would always say. I would say, why is taking care of me affecting you. Uh-huh.
0: Uh, writing that down. Okay. Are oh, we gonna do that one? I wish my say, boss was your neighbor. Say neighbor. <laughs> neighbor.
1: Why is taking care of me?
0: Why is taking care of me?
1: Affecting you. Affecting you. And it is the truth. I say that all the time. And let me tell you something. He would look at me like, um, I, I guess it's, I guess it's not. I, mm-hmm. Take care of yourself. So it was important of like, take care of your find times. And if people are not carving out the time for you at work and your family, find that time for yourself. Because you know, when you're giving, you're giving, you're giving, you forget sometimes that you gotta give to yourself. And so it's just so important. I mean, what do they say on planes? You know, if the plane's going down, put your mask on first for somebody else. (laughs) You know what I mean? And it's the same thing in mental health. If you see yourself going down, put your mask on before you go help somebody else whether that's a client, even your kids, you know what I mean? If you're not feeling that good and your kid is crying, (laughs) my mask is on first. I'm gonna get to you, but let me get my mask first because you're not doing anyone any service if you're trying to help them half full.
0: Yeah, I love it. (laughs) Two more questions and we're gonna get out of here. Um, Sylvie. Is that you there? Hey Sylvie! Hi friend, Sylvie wrote, I have a big interview tomorrow. What tricks do you use to get into a confident headspace? Uh, first of all, congratulations on the interview. I think
1: I think the first step in acknowledging and getting to that confident headspace is acknowledging you got an interview There's a lot of people who didn't even get that so don't ever doubt what your experiences are, because clearly it's got you into the room. And so be confident and be proud of those things that you've been through. Um, secondly, remember, there are other pieces outside of what's on that paper that make you the best candidate. So there are things you've experienced as a child, as an adult, with friends that have given you a perspective. And just know that it's okay for you to tap into those things and not to stick to what's on the paper. I'm sure you've been through a ton of job interviews, so you might know this, but I just want to reaffirm it for you. If this job is not for you, believe me, there is something that is better and more designed for your expertise that is coming right around the corner.
0: Good luck. Yeah. Everyone give her a big good luck. Good luck tomorrow. Yeah, send the energy. Send the energy. You got this job. Take those vibes. Yes. Take those vibes. Uh, Okay. last question for me, though. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, ask your question. Okay. The Fab Five is a boy or girl band. What boy or girl band and why? Um,
1: Unfortunately, we're not Destiny's Child because we are not breaking up. Though I would love to say that I'm Beyoncé or Kelly, but um, the boy, the girl band we would be is the Spice Girls.
0: Yeah, Uh, we
1: loved it. Uh, Which Spice are you? I would be Scary Spice, not just because she was the only black one, (laughs) uh, but because she could sing, though she can. She can sing. I can't at all. But um, there was a fearlessness to her about how she approached every part of her life the character um, Mm -hmm. in the Spice Girls, and I have that fearlessness of, like, we're going after it, you know what I mean? Like, go after it. So that's who we'd be.
0: And y'all's audition was kind of like something resembling an audition for, like... Oh, it was an audition for a boy (laughs) band. Like, they brought 200 gays in a room and were like, fight! (laughs)
1: Um, And so... It's kind of true. There was a lot of us there. And you know what? In the first five minutes, the five of us actually met. We've told this story before. But the reason we all connected, didn't know what category we were, we literally were melded together from the beginning. And the reason was, was because the other guys in there were competing Mm. and we were not. We were like, so like they would go in the room and they would come out and people would be like, well, what did they say in there? And they'd be like, I'm not telling you. This is my job. And we would go in the room and we'd come out and we'd be like, listen, they said this. I think I messed up, but if you can use the information to be better, take it. And we did that the entire interview. Do you
0: think the producers saw
1: that too? Uh, You know what? To be honest with you, I do. I think they they knew they they wanted the the intention to be... Um, people who were giving, and so if the show's about giving, and you come out of a room, and you're so closed off of giving the information, then they already see a bit of your character, mm-hmm. um, and so we just were like, yeah, here it is, and because we were like that, we stuck in a corner before the end of the first day, we already had a text chain that Bobby started called The Fab Five, and I literally said to him, either you're delusional, or you're a psychic and <laughs> he's clearly a clairvoyant psychic, and um <laughs> That's how he gets these houses together. He, like, sees it in the crystal ball or something. I, I love know. it. Um, but, yeah, and so I, it, it was a very special moment. And we didn't know until the second day that we were all in different categories because as it was dwindling down and we realized, oh, my gosh, we're getting closer, we were like, are any of us competing? And we were like, we're not competing? Oh, snap! This could happen. And, yeah.
0: um, and it did. It did happen, Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. All right, I want to give a special thanks to the entire th- team at Six and I for bringing me and Garamo here tonight. I want to thank the folks from my crew who are here, Carlene Watson, head of NPR's All Things Considered, Brent Bachman, who launched the show that I host, Joanna Palowska, who is our live events uh, producer extraordinaire, and some other NPR folks in the building. Thanks. Tonight. I love you all! Thanks again to Karamo Brown. His book is called Karamo, My Story of Embracing Purpose, Healing, and Hope. Uh, thanks to the whole crew that helped us make that live event a reality. Uh, engineers Andy Huther and Patrick Boyd for recording. Joanna Palowska for making the whole thing happen. Uh, she worked with NPR's events team. Also thanks to Nicole Schaller and Pilar Fitzgerald of NPR's events team. And to NPR's senior events director, Jessica Goldstein. Also, many, many thanks to Jackie Leventhal and Lindsay Adams at Sixth and I. All right, listeners, we're back on Friday with our weekly wrap. And if you listen to those episodes, you know that it's a group effort. Every week we hear from real live listeners sharing with me the best parts of their week. That should be you this week record your voice telling me the best part of your week and send that file to me at samsanders at npr.org samsanders at npr.org okay all right till then thank you for listening talk soon